Well, we're in the story still. You know, we've been going 19 weeks and it just gets better, I think. But it goes quickly. Really, we're going through the Bible. We're now sort of like Nehemiah's time as people return from their trip away. Well, not really a trip away, but when was the last time you took a holiday where you were away for a long time? Russell Joy, how long ago was that? A week ago. A week ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How was London? Yeah, did you see the Queen for a Jubilee? No, no okay. It's a bit, bit tucked away. Okay, lovely. Um, the, the longest time I've ever been on a holiday that I can remember was uh, when I was 17 and I went to Europe uh, with a concert band. And it was a great trip. The start was not so fantastic for me though because I came ill on our flight from Kuala Lumpur to Vienna and I just couldn't stop my motion sickness. When we landed in Vienna, I was wrecked that day and whilst the rest of the band or 60 of them went off on a tour of Vienna, I still have no idea what it looks like because I was stuck flat out on a bed for the day trying to recuperate. So um, I did go bungee jumping that night though, so I sort of made up for it, um, just something to do. Um, there was nothing left to come back up, so why not, you know? Um, we then went to the um, Austrian Alps for a few days and then visited Prague on our way through to Potsdam in Germany where we were, stayed for a week because there were some international marching band championships on which we went to. And uh, then we went on to Sweden for a week for like a tattoo type thing. Um, not the one on your arm, but the one with the band and the marching and stuff. Um, and uh, it was in Sweden, in fact, that I got to play my French horn for James Bond. Roger Moore was right there in the front row of a concert in Sweden. So there you go. Um, and then we finished with a couple more days in Denmark. And I came home with a girlfriend called Kelly. Uh, she was a member of the band. Uh, but one of the best moments after spending 24 hours on a plane and nearly a month away from home was getting home, going to bed in my own bed with my own pillow again. Oh, the simple things. Like, though, you just can't beat it. I mean, there's few places I've, I've travelled to where the bed and, and pillow has been more comfortable than my own. Uh, so in that sense, after long flights and weeks away, the comforts of home are simple pleasures that are hard to beat. You know, today's story is all about coming home. And the southern kingdom of Judah was in exile for 70 years. And it all became, came about because of God's loving discipline. You see, of the 12 tribes of Israel, they are the only one God chose to bring the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But they failed to accurately represent God to the other nations. And if God continued to bless them as he had been, and evil and, 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 and as they flirted with gods of other, of, of other nations and worshipped other gods, it would send a very confusing message about the nature and plan of the one true God in providing the way for all of us, not just the Jews, to get back with God in the garden. See, the 70 years are up, and it's time for them to come home to Jerusalem. 
And there are four lessons that we can learn today about coming back home. Maybe you or someone you know has drifted away from God or is estranged from family or has made some poor choices and you or that friend finds that your lives maybe are not working and you want to come back home. Well, I believe that the message today helps provide that roadmap. So first of all, God will make a way. If your heart is truly in the right place, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. God did this for Judah. Look at the opening words of the first verse of the Old Testament book of Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. What an amazing thing to happen. Did you catch that? This is not king of Israel. This is Cyrus, king of Persia. And he makes this decree. You know, God intervened from the upper story to open the door for their return. It says, if you didn't catch that, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. God will make a way. He turned the heart of a pagan king, the most powerful man in the world at that time, towards Judah. And he can do the same for you. You know, some of you have lived the life of a prodigal and have come back home. Almost always recount an incident outside of your control that paved the way for your return. For those of you still living life like a prodigal, and you're thinking there is no way back, well, there is. It comes from God's intervention from the upper story into your lower story. But there's something else we need to know before we venture back. Things need to be different. When you return back to God or your family or your sobriety, they can't, they, things just cannot be the same. Let me point out two major changes the way Judah is acting now versus before the discipline. The first is they didn't reinstate a king. If you recall, God didn't want Israel to appoint a human king. He wanted to lead them directly. But they wanted to be like the other nations and God allowed it. And as suspected, these kings led them away from God. The next king that stood on the throne of David will be Jesus, who is God wrapped in flesh. And look at the very first thing they did when their feet hit Jerusalem's soil. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built an altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it 
to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. They built an altar to God. What are they doing? Well, they are putting God first in their life. When you return back to God, this time he can't take second place. You get yourself to church each week, no excuses. You open up his word. You bring your decisions and requests to God in prayer for direction and grace. You say grace at the table, whether you're sitting by yourself with family and friends, that reminder of the gratitude attitude. You establish new and healthy patterns of gratitude and thankfulness to God. And you say yes to God's will without hesitation or compromise. You can't do the things you used to do. You can't hang out with the people you used to hang out with. Things have to be different. So the first thing they did was put God first in their life. And before that, they didn't reinstate a king. So that's what Judah did. And that's what we need to do too. We can't be our own king. You know, because we ourselves are the nation of Israel here. We often put ourselves on the throne of our own life and displace God. But that's the wrong priorities. They're, that's the wrong order. God is king. He is Lord. And so we are also supposed to be putting God first in our life because things need to be different. And along with that, there comes a bit of a danger. And so we need to stay alert to the enemy's schemes. Because here's a fact of life. There will always be someone who doesn't want you to recover, to get better, to succeed, and you will need to be aware of their schemes to bring you down. For Judah, their primary enemy was the surrounding nations who remembered when Israel was an unstoppable force in the world. And so this move to make Judah great again isn't making the other nations happy. Their first scheme was to infiltrate. They offered to join up with Judah to help them build the temple around the altar to God. But Zerubbabel, the leader, sniffed out their schemes and he made this reply. He said, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. But the enemy didn't stop there. They had many more tricks up their sleeves. They used discouragement, fear, bribery, and even powered up on the broken people of Judah. And guess what? It worked. Sadly, they stopped working on the temple and it laid dormant for 10 years. What did they do instead? Well, they turned their attention to building their own homes and their own lives. This is the single greatest mistake of the follower of God. They simply switched their priorities, me first and God second. And guess what happens? Their lives stopped working. They lost that sense of momentum. One day, they have the most powerful king in the world opening up his pocketbook to fund the entire project and to protect them from their enemies. And now, nothing. Someone turned off the tap of blessing. Their lives are in recession. They are stuck. 
And how quickly can that happen to us as well? We can be thinking that we've got our priorities right with God first, God at the centre of our lives. But then if we take a closer look, it's pretty clear that our priorities are me first and God second. That switch can happen so fast. This is the influence of our culture upon us. It's very rare to find a voice in our world that is telling us to sacrifice our personal comfort and our own priorities and instead prioritise God. I mean, you don't hear that on an advertising slogan anywhere, do you? I mean, think of the billions spent on marketing. You're worth it. I'm loving it. Just do it. Have it your way. No rules. Just right. Belong anywhere. Think different. The happiest place on earth gives you wings. I mean, they're just some quick messages from slogans of companies all around us that spend billions and billions of dollars on marketing. And those are the ones just off the top of my head. The happiest place on earth? Really? That, that's not Disneyland. These messages, though, are bombarding us in all places of our lives that we are the highest priority you're worth it me first but here's the truth the only way to live a successful life is to place god as our number one priority what does matthew 6 33 say but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you it's only as we have our priorities right will we be successful in life and the correct order of our priorities is this God, spouse, family, then work, church, and everything else. If you get that order out of whack, then just like Judah, your life too will stop working. We will suffer the same fate as them. Someone turned off the tap of blessing. Their lives are in a recession. They are stuck, which leads me to my final point. Remain open to correction. So God sent two prophets to them to confront them and to get them back on track. God's discipline of his people is never to tear them down, but to help them get back on track. Do you remember the last time you got a good spanking or a smack? I remember one time, and I'm not sure if it was the last time, but I, I wasn't tiny. Um, haven't been tiny for a long time. Uh, but we were staying with my grandparents and whenever we stayed with my grandparents, this is on my dad's side, um, my grandparents are lovely, godly people, but my goodness, did they make my mother stress. Have you ever seen the, um, the show Keeping Up Appearances? Well, my grandparents thought that that show was hilarious with Mrs. and Mrs. Bouquet, right? The last name is spelled Bucket, but they pronounce it Bouquet, right? My nana pa thought this was hilarious. But my nan was Mrs. Bouquet, and my pa is Mr. Bouquet, right? That is my grandparents. And they thought that show was hilarious. But that's a sort of like the prim and proper. They were the, you know, the, the country gentleman and, 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 and lady, right? That's, that's who, who they were. Oh, my dad, my, my pa's still around. Um, 93, just recently. Good on him. Um, but... We were there on holidays once and mum was so stressing because we had to be in our best behaviour. Their house was neat as upon neat. Nothing was out of place. The only thing you had to play with was a, um, 
a tea set, right, that was silver, but then they had the silver chromed so that you couldn't, like, they didn't have to keep tarnishing it, uh, um, polishing it. That was it. That was the only toy in the house was this silver tea set, right? Great fun. And anyway, we were there for a week in school holidays and I got into trouble about something. So mum marched me off down to the bedroom, I don't even know what I did, grabbed a thong and started giving me a smack. Now, um, I may have turned the waterworks on just a little bit, you know, to make it, you know, genuine, but that did not hurt at all. And mum said to me after she was doing this and I was like, ow, ow, uh you know, actor, she was like, that doesn't hurt at all, does it? They went, nope. <laughs> and so that broke the tension. We both had a gill, just, just behave, you know, and, and move us on. I remember that as one of the most recent spankings I got. Now I was probably, I don't know, eight, maybe. I can't remember. Um, but yes, uh, the smack I got from my mother, though, didn't physically injure me. None of them ever did. What she did was sent me a message, if you don't learn how to receive correction, you're not going to make it. And that was a good lesson to learn. We need to be open to correction. You might choose different methods of correction, but we still need to be open to correction. You know what I think some of us might actually need a good smack from time to time? And I think there's some of us that would benefit from a good smack from time to time. Um, God sent prophets to give his nation a good smack. Um, now, I use that in a, um, not in a physical punching people terminology. It's an example, illustration. Um, God sent the prophet Haggai to Judah to confront them. He gave them a good smack. Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. And the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because my house which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labour of your hands." To the same God who intervenes in, from the upper story to make the way back home is the same God who intervenes into their lower story to frustrate them, to stop them in their tracks, to shift the momentum for the purpose of getting their attention and moving them back in the right direction. Here's an observation from my life in ministry. It is true of my life and the lives of people I seek to lead spiritually that most of us 
are not open to correction. We're not teachable. We don't like to be confronted. When a marriage is deteriorating or an addiction is being formed or a negative behaviour is becoming a pattern and a loving friend or family member tries to confront it, most people won't listen. If you want to be a winner in life, you have to find a way to humble yourself and take tough news to heart. Now, for the record, I hate to be corrected. Um, I don't think anybody enjoys it, really. But over the years, I've seen this inability to be teachable be the downfall of so many people. So I've made it an intentional goal of mine to become a person open to correction. Fortunately for me, I haven't made many mistakes in the last 20 years. Uh, Sorry, did I say 20 years? I meant 20 minutes. I haven't made many mistakes in the last 20 minutes. Um, The first thing I do, though, when when confrontation comes my way is I take a few good deep breaths. Gives me a little bit of time to stop the immediate defensive instinct which we all have. The second thing I do is to consider the source. If it's coming from a person who's proven to not be for me, I shut them down, don't give them satisfaction of a positive response or a baited, being baited or anything. They're almost always in it to tear you down or get something from, for themselves. Once I shut them down, I take the core of their criticism into my prayer life and I ask God to reveal to me the kernel of truth that I can learn from that will make me a better person. Often God will tell me that what the enemy has said to me is a lie and I should not own it or let it defeat me. If, on the other hand, when a person who has walked with me and is for me and loves God confronts me, then I listen. I don't like it, but I listen. I don't automatically think they are right in what they are saying, but I listen and thank them. Confronting someone you love is one of the hardest things to do. Those who are married, just try. It's hard, isn't it? A few years ago, I was in a new job in the cemetery in Melbourne, and I wasn't there for long, as you know, a month or two, and my boss's boss, who oversaw the whole site, asked to meet with me for a coffee. I was like, great, I'll go have a coffee. And when I went and had this coffee, she gave me some feedback from a funeral director who had complained about me. And I said to her, thank you for your feedback. I will go away and assess what I might need to take on, if anything, so I can perform my role effectively. To her, she later told me that she was so offended. She was like, I'm your boss, you will do what I say. But then she thought it over and mulled over my response, I think, because it grinded on her because she was so offended by it. Um, And this stuck with her for the couple of weeks and a little while later she asked me to meet for a coffee again one morning. She then told me the story of how offended she was after our last meeting, uh, but the more she thought about it, the more she understood that the approach I took was actually wise. She then shared with me how she'd recently received some feedback herself from the CEO. She responded the way I did to her, uh, she she responded to the CEO the way I did to her, 
and saw the wisdom in coming to the best outcome through reflection on the core truth and being able to sift out everything else, of being able to assess the source of the criticism, if there's any truth to it, and then choosing a path forward that is healthy and sustainable. And that interaction changed our working relationship as well. She was still my boss's boss, but she interacted with me as a peer from then on. Because what she didn't know was the funeral director that gave the feedback was actually the sworn business enemy of someone I'd already done some work for previously, and she carried that in and was trying to get me fired because I'd worked with someone she hated. So my boss didn't know that, and my boss was friends with this funeral director, and so it was a really difficult situation. But Randy tells this story from a number of years ago when he was 39. He was living a similar message um, who was giving a similar message to today's. Randy is the one who is one of the authors of this series. And uh, he um, explained that often when we receive criticism, it comes from a member of the opposite sex, such as your wife. But when women communicate, they do it differently to men. And so over the years, whenever his wife had tried to confront him, he could never make out what she was saying. And so he had this in his sermon one time. He said, I have given my wife permission, if she can't get through to me, to go to three men who love me and they will come to me with what she's trying to tell me. And he, he never thought that this would actually happen, right? He was just giving it as a sermon illustration one day. Well, I think it was maybe two weeks later, it came back to haunt him. At the age of 39, he'd picked up the game of golf. And Randy'd never golfed prior to that, but he picked up the game and he got hooked right at that time in his life, though he also had four small children at home. And he was playing golf a lot. One time he'd been gone for a week speaking in churches and conferences and the plane landed back at home and he thought, if I hurry, I can get out to the course and play nine holes before the sun goes down and I'll see my family later. And that's what he did. Well, the next morning, these three men showed up at his door. They sat him down and said, Randy, you're golfing too much. Randy's first response, that's funny because most of the time I'm golfing with you guys. And they said, Randy, you're golfing too much. And he said, you want to talk to me about my golf? Hey, I know your sins better than my own and your sins are worse than golf. Randy, you're golfing too much. He recounts how in that moment he decided to own it and he went to his wife and they worked out a plan that enabled him to golf but not in a way that undermined his family. Because of the loving confrontation of those men, he believes he escaped what would have been the destruction of his legacy and today he enjoys a relationship with his grandchildren and his children and his wife of over 40 years. Praise God for friends who will tell us the truth, eh? We need friends who will tell us the truth. Back to Judah. When Haggai and Zechariah delivered the news to them, they did the most unexpected thing. They listened. See, they're doing things differently. They listened. They work on the temple they resumed working on the temple and, and it was completed. And once again, they experienced the wind of God's blessings at their back. As I close this message today, 
I'm sure that each of us probably fit into one of these three categories. Those who need to come back home. Maybe you feel forsaken God as your number one priority and are experiencing a spiritual drought in your life right now. Maybe you've succumbed to the ungodly voices all around us and placed your own personal comfort and satisfaction above God, your spouse and your family. Maybe you have returned but are struggling. Maybe you've turned that corner and have come back home but are struggling. Life's still hard. Change is not coming as fast as you'd like. Things just don't seem to be going back the way they were and in fact may never, but that's hard as well. The third is those who have someone they love who needs to come back home. Maybe you know someone who you love and who needs to come back home but are still unrepentant prodigals. These people weigh heavy on our hearts and we can see the pain being caused by their choices, the foolishness and the pride, and it hurts us and it hurts them. So what can we do? We might certainly feel hopeless, but God is a God of restoration and hope. There is always something we can do, and that is we can always start with prayer. So let's pray for people who need to return home. Heavenly Father, Lord, today I'm, I know there are some of us who are probably here thinking that we've got it all in hand and that you know, we're not one of those people. We've got our priorities right. But Lord, if we're sitting here thinking we're, we're all good, Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit to reveal in us areas, Lord, where we do not place you as our first priority, areas where we do not place our spouse second and our family third and then our church and ministry and everything else and work. Lord, it's a tough spot to be in when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit. But Lord, as your Spirit convicts us, Lord, we ask that you would also transform us. Lord, there are some of us who are trying as hard as we can, but Lord, it's still hard. We've turned back to you and Lord, things are not as easy as we would like them to be. Lord, your promise was never to make life easy, but it was to walk with us through the hard moments where we can lean on your strength. So Lord, help us do that. And Lord, I reckon just about all of us know some unrepentant prodigals, some people who are hurting, are hurting themselves, are hurting those around them, Lord, because they have got their priorities out of whack. They've got me, themselves, and I as the three most important people in their life. And Lord, we ask that you would help them replace that with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as the most three most important people in their life. Lord, we pray that as we, we turn to you and as we pray for those who need to turn to you, that, Lord, you would do a mighty work in, in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Lord, we ask that as we come before you humbly, that, Lord, you would restore to us things that were lost, that you would rebuild things that are broken, that you would restore things that were torn down, 
and that, Lord, you would lead us into a future that is full of hope in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, we started today with that song, Christ is my firm foundation. And what better way to end our service today than by seeing the same thing? Because it is only upon Christ as our firm foundation are we able to build a successful life, a life that honours him and glorifies him and that keeps us centred in our way back home.